Too many who know the angles Uncover and untangle All the questions and the webs left out to tangle be in 1962, last Wednesday's afternoon, they'll bend your ears with reckless self-abandon. The amazing spider talk, the amazing spider talk, come swing the air, sit back and prepare for the amazing spider. Hello, I'm Dapper Dan Kavazdan, and I'm the founder and editor of AmazingSpiderTalk.com, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, including the annuals. And I'm Mischievous Mark Chinacchio, and I'm the founder of the Chasing Amazing blog, author of 100 Things Spider-Man Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die, and I too own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, but the annuals don't count. Mark, there hasn't been a solicited annual for 2020 yet. Are we going to get an annual in 2020? Is it going to be one of those freak years where there's no annual? I think there's been six years with no annual by my count. Right. Which is, again, part of like my theory as to why do we care about these comics that don't, you know, they say annual, but do they come out annually? Eh. (laughs) I think what was it last year? We had two amazing annuals. We had the one with the black costume and the one with Ned Leeds. Right. So truly. These are the series that are worth monitoring that just kind of come out willy-nilly. Anyway. (laughs) Well, thanks, everybody, for joining us for a special review roundup episode of the all-new Amazing Spider Talk. We hope you enjoy this podcast and that it provides an intelligent conversation between two fans and collectors as we look at the Spider-Man comic universe in a bit of a bigger picture. Today, we are going to be rounding up a series of reviews of Amazing Spider-Man that originally premiered for our Patreon supporters back when these issues were first published. That's right. We are going to be reviewing Amazing Spider-Man Volume 5, issues number 35 to 37, which was the conclusion of the 2099 storyline. Number 2099, Dan, that happened, what, 100 years ago now? (laughs) (laughs) It does feel that way. It does feel that way. Also, everybody, please be sure to remember that this episode wouldn't be possible without the support from our wonderful Patreon subscribers, whose very patronage allows us to assemble the guests we have on the show, do all of our research and everything else that we do. Keep even everything on the air. It costs money to keep this thing up. So if you enjoy the show and you want to help us continue while getting amazing bonus content like these reviews when they were originally released to our Patreon subscribers and additional episodes like our new mailbag episodes that we never release publicly, go to our show notes and check out our Patreon page and consider joining our team. To that point, we want to thank all of our new Patreon members. So a special thanks to Eric Shaw, Haley Swick, Sam McLean, Jason Combs, Nathaniel Blaylock, Tristan Matthews, Jacob Roselle, and Matt Welty. Thank you, everyone, for supporting us as we continue to deliver all this content and more, even through the global pandemic. Hurrah! And thank you, Dan, for not giving me any of the hard-to-pronounce names today. I'm, I work on it. I work on it. Although, Blaylock is not certainly easy. Now, let's get to the action. We hope you enjoy our review of Amazing Spider-Man Volume 5, number 35. What's new?
Enjoy our review for Amazing Spider-Man 35. We're talking about, what is this, part four of this 2099 story? Well, well, part four with an ASM. Or is it part three or is it part seven? It's hard to keep track because it just doesn't feel like the story is compelling in any way and going anywhere. Am I am I being too harsh in saying that? No, I don't think so. And I think it's the recap page that kind of says it all. Like it goes it's recapping it and in within two sentences it says meanwhile and then the next sentence starts also meanwhile and then it concludes with maybe Spidey should start with the biggest problem. And it's like if you have to hedge your bets that way I mean, at least I, I'm glad the recap has a sense of humor about itself. But like this tale is even acknowledging how overcrowded it is in the text of the recap. If you don't mind, Dan, I don't I don't mean to kind of recap the recap, but like let's let's kind of like establish what the threads are are in the story right now, because like I feel like every time we check back in on ASM lately, I'm almost forgetting what some of these subplots are because it's like, oh, yeah, that's right. That's what's going on. Like, okay, so obviously the the, the main thrust of this storyline is that Spider-Man 2099 is back and the future is in jeopardy, right? I mean, is that a fair assessment to say that that's the main thread line of this storyline right now? I don't even know if I can say that, Mark, because I don't know what the future in jeopardy looks like. Like, I read... 2099 alpha and it's no clearer to me after reading that and spider-man 2099 just like disappeared in a puff of electricity and so i don't know if it, he was actually back was it a hologram was he just like there for a second and gone what is he warning against is it doom i, I can't tell you mark for sure that that's the ape story i mean it seems like it is it's been advertised that way Judging on like the cover illustrations and how this book is being marketed, it's supposed to be a story about 2099. Whether whether that's being conveyed or not <laughs> remains to be seen, I guess, four parts in. But okay, so that's one thread line. Then then this other thread line in terms of like kind of the main villain conflict is we have Doom. There was an assassination attempt on Doom, but it was a Doom bot that got killed, and now Doom is ticked. Right. Like that's we can that's a plot line that's established at this point. Right. Yeah. And that's chameleon and, you know, Baroness, whatever from Latveria who put out the hit and they used Hitman to do it with a kind of experimental rifle. And then in the midst of all this, Teresa Parker is back and she's still steaming about a shield agent friend of hers. Right. That got assassinated by chameleon a few issues back. Right. So, Correct. OK, so that's another thread line. And then on top of all of that, we have like this Peter Parker Empire State uh, University subplot with one of the other students there. And it's a device that can that can see briefly into the future. What are they referring to it as a clairvoyant reactive reaction device thingy? So that's another plot. And, and Peter is being recruited to help refine this technology. And somewhere in the midst of all that, Silver Sable and the Foreigner are mixed up in all of this somehow. They get a brief mention in this issue. I mean, we just talked about a half dozen story arcs here. And a half dozen story arcs, yet none of them seem to be developing at a pace that would indicate that 
things are happening. I mean, I guess you could say the Doom stuff is happening, but like the others seem kind of just stuck in neutral for the most part. Yeah, and I don't think I would mind seeing like a Spidey fight a bunch of Doom bots in New York City issue or two as a kind of like follow up on Amazing Spider-Man number five. You know, like Doom has been one of Spidey's rogues from the very beginning. I mean, he's not a very active rogue, but... Like, I wouldn't mind seeing a Spidey versus Doom in New York City series of issues. I just don't know that, like you said, that's at the heart of all this truly, you know, or or it, we're really getting that really kind of fleshed out with, with all these other things going on. It just seems kind of like that Doom is being used as a device to kind of force some of these other subplots, whether it be the 2099 one or stuff with Teresa, because, you know, Peter kind of has to make Teresa back off of her her blind ambition in order to deal with the Doom situation. But like, yeah, but there's really no like core Spider-Man Doom conflict. It's just kind of like Doom is going is is running rampant and Spider-Man feels kind of obligated to do something about it because at the heart of what has caused Doom to run rampant are characters related to Spider-Man. It's it's so loosey-goosey, Dan. Even reading the kind of monologue recap here at the beginning of this book where we get a couple pages of, like, establishing the Doom threat, that was enough for me. I, like, I felt like that was pretty fun, like, seeing Doom standing in front of the train so people couldn't leave New York and... You know, if that was the threat, that reminds me of like Amazing Spider-Man number one from this run with the aliens kind of overriding New York and Spider-Man has to be the unique guy amongst the superheroes to stand up to it. Like if that was the story we were getting here and it was that simple, I I would be down for that. It was clearly presented and Nick Spencer Spider-Man reads like the real deal. And and really like my threshold is so low. It's like if Spider-Man is fighting a bunch of guys and he's written like the real thing. Like, that's oftentimes enough for me. What did we think about this new art team? Because it, it, that was the other thing, Dan. Like, the last few issues, we were not, like, jazzed about the plot and the storyline and where all these threads were going. But we really loved the art. And we got another new art team here. It's Oscar Basildua and Steve Fershow on Colors. Not to sound rude, but, like, what is going on with the art in this book, Mark? You bring on Patrick Gleason and that team and they're doing this great job. You know, Matthew Wilson on colors doing a fabulous job. And why not have them complete this story arc? Like I'm it has to do with scheduling. But then so like figure out that schedule. Like I don't want to bash Basil Dua because I think we've commented on us liking his stuff. You know, I think back in like volume four, he did some books that we liked the way they looked. And I know he can do better than this. This looked like a rush job, like a last minute, like, hey, Patrick Gleason couldn't make this work. So, Oscar, can you step up and and be a pitch hitter for us? If you're going to do a book with Otley and Gleason, who are both amazing, but neither of them can keep up the double shipping schedule or the schedule of a normal artist, because double shipping with two artists would be a normal schedule for an artist or your, or your editorial team can't wrangle that then like you need to bring in an artist who's known for being quick and effective, like a Mark Bagley, you know, that guy was doing 18 issues of ultimate Spider-Man in a year, you know, like why not get a guy that can 
reliably do that and then kind of trade off with a superstar like Otley or Gleason. I mean, even Kamakoli when when he was on the book, I mean, like his I, I wouldn't call Camo a superstar, but like I felt like his stuff was more than adequate, more than appealing to look at. And he seemed to work quick and kind of like I remember back to Spider-Verse a couple of years back when we had uh, Coppel. Like when he clearly couldn't keep up with the schedule and, and Camo came in and kind of pinched hit. And and for the most part, like the art was not was never my issue with Spider-Verse. Well, I shouldn't say that, but <laughs> I mean, it, it was one of the lesser concerns. <laughs> um, but this book was not this book being ASM 35 was not terribly appealing to look at. And and like the figures just kind of seemed disproportionate from each other there was just no detail no sexy splash pages at all to kind of point to i mean it this this was i, I mean like you said we don't i don't want to like trash an, an, an artist because i'm sure there were circumstances and like you said this this feels rushed and it looks rushed and that's probably you know in a way to be fair where i'll stop is it's it just looks rushed I just think like, you know, I, I, you know, I have a history of beating up on Spider-Man editorial. This book reads like editorial is not helping out its creative team. You know, it's not delivering on like what it can do to help the creative team. And like, for, you know, for example, and we're not talking about this book on the show, but I don't know, Mark, if you've been following the J.J. Abrams, Henry Abrams, Spider-Man release schedule. Well, I got through two issues. Has there been a third? No, because it got pushed back like two months. And then the following issue got pushed back like another month beyond that. We're seeing this book that like nobody was asking for could have been a surprise book that you could release even weekly if you wanted to, to get people into your comic book stores, right? Because this is the whole point of doing this book is to get new people reading it. And suddenly it's getting delayed months and months and months and months and months. And it just suggests to me an editorial that like doesn't really know what it's doing. Like hold on to that book, wait till it's done and then release it so that you can at least pretend to have some kind of continuity in your office and from your release schedule. And I just don't get it. And it seems to be across the board here. Like, c- come on, Nick Lowe and team, like, l- let's get it together. You know, I don't know. I'm sure like as an editor, I know that like as a former editor, at least myself, I know that there are a lot of things that can pop up artists and that have family things and stuff like that. But like this pattern has been going on for so long. It's time for them to really kind of like either step up or like move aside to someone that can handle a workload like this. And, you know, Marvel's not making it easy. I mean, how many books is Nick Lowe publishing from his editorial office? Maybe Nick Lowe and company are just trying to, like, make their version of, like, the Kevin Smith, ter- was it uh, Terry Dodson, Evil That Men Do? <laughs> uh, right. series. We're going to drag this one out for four years. <laughs> I mean, Marvel editorial, like, I don't know. It just seems very strange. I mean, the book comes out regularly. I'll give them that. There doesn't seem to be any kind of story oversight or even art oversight going on here. We touched upon some Doom stuff. Let's let's talk about some of these other subplots going on here and, and what developed or didn't develop. We got some more stuff with uh, Teresa Parker here. There are some jokes about Peter's spycraft or lack or lack thereof in terms of his abilities do you see anything bigger coming from any of this i you know like we we even got references to peter's parents as androids is is spencer about to undo something else 
that was my suspicion when reading this. I mean, why bring up all that stuff? I mean, it's rich, right? It's rich potential to, you know, when you have a sibling, Parker sibling and chameleon in a room to cite what he did, but they keep talking about DNA, you know, spycraft being a part of Spider-Man's DNA. It, to me, it seems like a kind of nod towards like, we're really going to get into the history of the Parkers in some way. If this spy stuff really does fit with Spider-Man and his storytelling and I don't know. I mean, maybe this is wishful thinking, but like we've been saying it for a few episodes now that like we want the Teresa stuff undone and I'll jump at any, any opportunity that seems like he's going to do that. But that's what came to my mind when reading this. I mean, is, is that what came to your mind or, you know, is it just kind of us reading into this stuff? I don't know if I, if I went exactly where you went with it, but like I did find it curious that this storyline from the 90s that has really for the most part been untouched since it happened despite the fact that when it happened in the 90s this was a big deal story i mean like like you think back to like all of the big things that happened in the 90s between clones and carnage that's been mined over and over and over again this whole saga with peter's parents and them coming back from the dead but then turning out to be androids that were set up by the chameleon and then of course the osborne connection and all this like i mean that's a storyline that went on literally for what like 30 40 issues of of asm at some point i mean a long time at least you know like amazing 375 was where i started and they were in it and it and it went well right up until 400 well i remember the the first reappearance of of Richard and Mary Parker was the the hologram issue 365 the 30th anniversary of Amazing Fantasy I'm trying to remember yep like they 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 pop up at the end of that story and then it kicked off this whole thing but yeah 375 it started advancing even further and I think that continued on through into like the 390s if memory serves or maybe like late 380s so so we're talking almost 30 issues and you know so we're two years worth of storylines at least for the most part that has been untouched so to kind of poke at it the way spencer's doing here insinuates that something's coming i kind of like what you're saying i mean now am i being outlandish and speculating based on what you're speculating like could we have a situation where Teresa Parker is, in fact, Richard and Mary Parker's daughter, but maybe Peter is not their son. Well, that would be extreme. Uh, but, <laughs> I don't know if I'm going that far. Well, but or or that the, the whoever these shield agents are aren't actually his parents. I mean, could that could could there be something to that? Yeah, maybe there's a way of undoing the whole spy element of Peter Parker's origin altogether. I mean, fire up the kindred alarm because. <laughs> You know, kindred family, like, you know, maybe this is all a part of it, too. I, I don't think so. But, you know, you know, if we were to go down that way and to re like unreveal Peter's parents or whatever, you know, that like that, I could see him doing that. You know, like we, we are still waiting for the big hook of the Nick Spencer run. And other than playing like Mr. Fix It, which is kind of what I'm implying with the Teresa thing, if he wants to make a big stamp like what you're suggesting would be certainly a big stamp. It would be a way to not completely undo who Teresa is while simultaneously undoing the idea that Peter Parker has a true blood relative 
sister here, right? Right. I mean, I don't see Teresa being an LMD because like in another universe, she had like a biological birth certificate. Now that was another universe, so it doesn't really matter, which is how I kind of have been no prizing my way out of her actually being his sister. And I, and I know there are people that are thrilled when they listen to this and they think that we just hate Teresa Parker so much that we keep bringing it up. And like, I'll be honest, I hate Teresa Parker. I think it's a bad idea to make her Spider-Man sister. So maybe we are belaboring this too much, but like, I, I have to think that Nick Spencer feels similarly in that he's gone back and corrected a bunch of stuff that you and I were bothered about that we don't even remember being bothered about. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I feel quite as strongly as you do about her, but like, I I do feel strongly in the fact that Peter Parker shouldn't have a sister, yeah, you know, or Spider Man shouldn't have a sister. How about that? Let, let's let, or a secret spy sister. Yeah, there you go. Beautiful. So so speaking of the secret spy sister, there is this interesting kind of interplay going on where they 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 encounter Chameleon. Teresa shoots him, but only in the arm. But before it happens. Spider-Man kind of freaks out a bit because she thinks he thinks she's uh, shooting to kill and she's kind of like, well, I'm not that dumb. And Peter kind of has this inner monologue moment, which I appreciated of being like, well, who knew? You know what I mean? So uh, but I mean, did, did, did you get any satisfaction out of that whole scene at all or what? I like the bit where like the chameleon turns into Teresa's former partner to piss her off. Like I thought that was kind of kind of nice. And there's this weird response from Chameleon where he says, not bad girl, but no one can hit like my brother, which I thought was interesting. Like, have we ever seen instances of like brotherly physical abuse between Craven and Chameleon? I'm sure it must have happened at some point. I don't know if there is no history whatsoever, but, you know, they've they've obviously had interplay. But, yeah, you never see any kind of abuse situation. I mean, I don't know if this was just kind of Spencer name checking the fact that he obviously has a lot of love for Craven. He did the entire story dedicated to him that went on for months and months. So I, I, I don't know. I'm not super keen on like the whole revisiting Spider-Man's no kill thing constantly, but whatever it is what it is. And I've belabored that point enough already on this show. So speaking of weird origins, we got some background on the Hitman here. Do you care to take a crack at what the hell's going on with the Hitman? Well, the Hitman is given like the Ned Leeds treatment. Like he's killed off page and he's just laying there dead in a chair, which, okay. But like, here's the crazy thing. So the Hitman gets this new status quo, like we, which we don't see where apparently he wants to cheat death over and over again, because during the clone conspiracy, he came back from the dead and like that wasn't enough for him. So now he's devised a way to upload his consciousness into new bodies in like the Seychelles, you know, where where all the kind of foreign powers are stashing their money and having secret meetings to take over the world, which is like a cool idea for a hitman character, right? This guy that could strike anywhere from anywhere and and die and not really worry about it. Except, Mark, have you read the the House of X and Powers of X stuff? Not yet. Why? Okay, well, then spoilers, take your headphones off if you don't want to hear this major spoiler for that story. And that goes for you guys at home, too. So basically, this presupposes that Hitman has the same power that everyone in the X books do now. Like in the you know House of X, Powers of X, like they established that like the X-Men have found a way of like cloning their minds and entering new bodies so that they can die over and over again. 
And it's like, that's such a cool thing in that story and the backbone of that story that for them to like just do that loosely for Hitman here, like it's fine. It's comics, I guess. People can do this kind of thing. But like to make not a big deal of it, it like, I don't know, it just wrinkled for me because like I had invested so much in that storyline to have an editor like on another side of the line just be like, oh yeah, this guy can do that too is kind of cheap, at least in my mind. You've done a good job here, not to reveal the sausage making, but you've made note of who shows up. Uh, and there's like this panel where we see stuff from like Powers of X, Spider-Man Reign, Young Avengers. There's, there's Days of Future Past. There's like Wolverine getting fried by a Sentinel. Like what, the, what, what is going on, Dan? Where, where is this coming from? I mean, I'm guessing it's all the other multiple universes that like the clairvoyant is sampling to find the problem. Like I thought that was interesting. Although like they're not, some of them are not really multiple universes, like different universes, at least as far as I know, like the powers of 10 stuff and the days of future past and amazing Spider-Man 500. And and, like those aren't other universes, like their potential futures for this universe. So I thought that was kind of strange. I guess Spider-Man 500 has, kind of been retconned to being another universe at least in the spider-verse because we got like old man like ben parker spider-man my bigger curiosity is this clairvoyant reactivating for like a dumb reason which is like that miguel's self-implosion charged the clairvoyant fine but like what is lila doing in this thing like this isn't a miguel device as far as i know it was his like death did it somehow implant Lila in this thing? I don't, I don't know. I just think it's kind of silly. Any other big plot beats you want to get into on this, this issue? Well, I mean, the final beat of the book is right. They return to Doom using the knowledge from the clairvoyant, which I don't think they really needed. It's kind of an obvious plan to like return Hitman to Doom, right? That's what he wants. It's the person that shot him. So why not return this dead body of this dude that nobody is invested in anymore? So they take him back with like chameleon in disguise as like a Latvian guy. And it doesn't work for some reason that I'm not sure. And then doom days of future past them by blasting them with his like hand lasers or whatever. I guess this giant version of doom, which like, where did he hide that? was there a giant robotic doom underneath New York all this time uh, th- that I'm not sure about. Are we really to believe that those beams are are fatal or I, I mean, you know, I'm pretty sure we're going to see in the next issue like Spider-Man just kind of like, you know, brushing off the flesh wound there. Or it's some time travel thing where like that's the future that like 2099 wanted to prevent. So maybe we'll follow him from now on. Like that would be refreshing to kind of fill in that gap. Because we got what, two issues left of the storyline for ASM? Oh, geez. Yes, um, we do. Yeah, so maybe we're going to get that. So for all of our complaining, Mark, like I felt like this issue was kind of at least the most straightforward of all of the issues. Like it followed kind of one plot and kind of stuck with it. And so for that, I think like, okay, like at least this one, I can kind of like follow the beat and it is being led by Spider-Man. Like he's the main character that's pushing things forward. Like, but I just don't care about any of this. Nor I, and yeah, I just, I, I, 
Yeah, logical. Like, I guess that's fine. And the characters are familiar. Like, there's like no no one is being written poorly in terms of character. But like, yeah, the storyline is just like this is so forgettable, Dan. Like, I I, I don't I don't remember. <laughs> I don't remember a storyline so forgettable, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, what is to make this a story that needs to be told in the mainline book? Like, this is like a B-title story for me. Like, it's a, it's another side adventure that Spider-Man... Like, this is something that, like, Chip Zdarsky was writing in Spectacular Spider-Man before he wrote the issue that won him in Eisner. If you wanted to do a 2099 mini... Maybe just tell it in that, you know what I mean? Like separate from all this. So I, 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 I don't get it. This is where we are. You want to you want to give it a grade? This one's a D from me. Yeah, I was going to say D plus, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> Very little distinction between a D and a D plus in my opinion. I mean, it's tough, but like without the art to really support it, it's like there's not much for me to really like grab onto here. Hopefully with two issues to go, we'll, we'll, we'll have plenty to grab onto or or not but either way we want to thank all of you out there your the loyal patreon subscribers for for at least allowing us the opportunity to yammer on about it yeah and i'm looking forward to the stuff after this storyline like we got the j jonah jameson's coming back as a podcaster and it looks like chance is appearing like give me j jonah jameson as a podcaster and let me peer through that book and like see what kind of digs at podcasting they take because uh That'll really kind of make me happy, I think. You just want to see them make fun of us, Dan. I get it. (laughs) I do. I really do. I'll admit it. (laughs) Okay, Dan. Next up is our review of Amazing Spider-Man number 36, where we hope this storyline can pull itself together with the finale. We thought the finale was okay. Yeah, it's true. (laughs) It was fine. Yeah. This episode wouldn't be possible without the support from our wonderful Patreon subscribers, whose patronage allows us to assemble the guests we have on the show and do all of our research. If you enjoy the show and want to help us continue while also getting amazing bonus content and additional episodes that we never release publicly, go to our show notes and check out our Patreon page and consider joining our team. Enjoy our review for Amazing Spider-Man 36. Mark, it is finally the end of this 2099. I don't even know if that's a fair thing to call this crossover event. Have you read any of the other 2099 books out of this? I have not. But, you know, what's kind of curious about all that is if the previous issues didn't kind of loosely tie into 2099 stuff based on this issue alone. I would have been like, wait, 20, why is there a 2099 logo on the cover of this comic? Because on the cover of this clearly inventory cover comic, (laughs) no, I have not been reading because frankly, this book wasn't doing enough to draw me in. And I don't know if there's bigger things going on in these other books, but like, Frankly, I feel like this issue specifically just did a total disservice to the idea that this was some kind of major event. I mean, it just kind of makes the whole exercise really feel, you know, I hate to use this word because it's kind of cliche and angry, angry sounding, but it felt kind of pointless because like, what, 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 what have we been doing literally the last two and a half months with the series is like, there was really no tie in whatsoever. I mean, there was a couple of little things, but like, I, I, I don't know. Like, like, am I supposed to like be nostalgic for 2099 now after these comics? Cause I'm not. Are you? No, not at all. And some of the information about what's been going on in the other books 
that has trickled into me through osmosis sounds vaguely intriguing. I mean, I picked up the alpha issue and found it utterly confusing. And so I didn't follow it further. And now I'm like, I think I'm going to read them on Marvel Unlimited when we get there eventually. But yeah, this felt totally perfunctory. And, you know, it'd be better if the main story was actually interesting too. So now I'm just kind of just curious in general. But yeah, so we get this inventory cover and which really feels like an inventory story. It has nothing to do with Nick Spencer's really ongoing run. I mean, there's a few tie-ins here and there. There's like the Silver Sable thing. And like Spider-Man at college got really established in this arc. This is not really the way to do that. Yeah, this is the final issue of it. And I guess, I don't know, Mark, what are your overall thoughts on this? Did it pick up at all at the end? In its own kind of bizarre way, I almost felt like, I don't want to call it the best story of this run. This did feel like a Spider-Man story. Whereas the others... Peter Parker and Spider-Man felt kind of absent for large stretches, right? Yeah, I think I agree with that. I think the the peak for me was really in terms of Spider-Man was the issue, the final issue from Patrick Gleason, where the Doombot was dead and Spider-Man got involved in in that regard, the kind of establishment of the threat. If only because we got a couple of scenes where Spider-Man swinging around town and reflecting on the mess that he got himself into. But yeah, I think this one too, like. For the first half of this book, it does feel like Spider-Man is at least driving the action largely here. Yeah, he's driving the action. He's 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 trying to kind of problem solve a bit. I mean, they're definitely playing with the trope of Spider-Man overcoming tremendous odds. I mean, heck, they even directly quote, or I felt this was a direct quote, the Spider-Man versus Juggernaut issue from Roger Stern when when Spider-Man throws a uh, oil tanker, exploding oil tanker at Doom, and that f- doesn't put a dent in him, you know what I mean? Like I, I, I felt like, oh wow, they're they're really going for broke in terms of like, oh look, he's he's back, total back against the wall and facing certain death. How's he gonna maneuver his way out of that? So like, okay, like it, it, it kind of felt familiar. They were playing the hits a bit here. It felt like coming home to me in some ways, like the Moreland one hand picking Spider Man up, you know, like and. Like that felt similar to me too. They're definitely like playing the hits here in terms of, well, what makes a good Spider-Man adversity story? But like, again, like none of this felt remotely earned from the previous issues. And like, you know, I felt like certain plot threads that they were teasing this whole time just felt completely abandoned. And again, similar to last issue, really didn't dig the art on this at all. So like, you know, when you're, when you're trying to do dynamic stuff, I mean, Doom is, Doom's a dynamic villain. I mean, especially visually. And like, it's just not, you know, nothing is popping here for me in terms of this battle. It's just kind of, kind of feels like a letdown for the most part. When we ended that Patrick Gleason issue with the giant image of doom over the city, like I very much thought that that was like a metaphor or at the very least like a holographic image. But here it seems like that was like a literal thing, like half the time, like half the time doom is a hundred feet tall and the other half the time he's like doom sized. And I never really was able to quite square what it is we're going for there. It's it, it's it, it matters for the narrative, even if the beginning of this book is a big fake out. But like, what is he actually squaring up, off against? Are there hundreds of Doombots? Because then it just becomes very like localized on one guy. 
Like the whole thing felt very strange to me in terms of like how the threat was established. And so I couldn't totally buy into it, but like, it's decent. Like just getting a, like, you know, a overcoming the odds thing was kind of fun. Uh, what did you think about the resolution to the fight? Well, even before we get that, can we actually talk a little bit? I, you had mentioned like the threat of doom and like, I, I, I did have some kind of issues with the portrayal of that. I've not been reading as much other non-Spider-Man Marvel as I've had in other past years on this show. So maybe I'm missing something here, but like they were playing with this idea with all these different iterations of the timeline through the, the, what do you call it device? The um, clairvoyant clairvoyant. Thank you. They were also paying homage. I felt visually to like days of future past in terms of like doom shooting the lasers, all of the sentinels and vaporizing. But like that was that that was it too. I'm like saying to myself, wait, how how powered up is doom here? I mean, like I know doom is considered a major threat in the Marvel universe, but this is like Thanos with the Infinity Gauntlet level of stuff we're talking about here in terms of like his power set here. Um, I mean, there was like one alternative timeline where it basically shows like Doom having wiped out all the Avengers. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, what, like, what, what, what's going on with Doom here? Like, did, did, did Doom like ingest an Infinity Stone or something? Like, like, I, I was very confused by that. Yeah. And I think that the visualization of those different options, like, they're kind of fun, but they're not really like wacky or inventive enough to really stand out like having Spider-Man put on a suit of armor or attack him with the Avengers or go to Mephisto. Like it's kind of cheeky, but like, you know, in, in a scenario like this, if we're already going this wild, like why not come up with some really more fun kind of weird things to see? Like I think about like uh, amazing Spider-Man 500 where there's the kind of like the old man Spider-Man and, like the kind of visions of the future that are really different. Like if you're going to do time travel and introduce that element in and stuff like that, like go, go a bit wilder than just kind of the basics. The moral to be gleaned here is like, well, the initial moral is like, Oh, well, Spider-Man just kind of tells the truth, you know, like, like no more games. This is what happened. But you know, I can't let this get any further because they're just trying to set you up. And then PS, they set the chameleon and all them set doom up anyway. But like, I guess it's cutting the Gordian knot in the sense of the way that only Spider-Man can, but like it didn't feel that inspired to me. I mean, did you, did you like how they got Spider-Man out of that jam? I think in the moment I thought like there were some clever things about it. Like I like the idea that he only has a 51% chance to be successful and Spider-Man considers that good odds. Like that seems like a very Spider-Man thing to do you know like he if he's going to get a victory it's going to be the slimmest victory possible in order to make that happen he has to let doom beat him up first like that seemed kind of spider-man-y to me and and i I liked the kind of idea of it you know just relating it to kind of like modern day events like there was the the afghanistan papers which came out last week like about how like the war in Afghanistan was like poorly managed the whole way through. And it got me thinking, you know, this is just me in my own head. Like if we never did anything in response to nine 11, would the world be a better place? You know, like only bad things have come out of our reactions to that, you know, cataclysmic event. And in a more broad, in a more broad way saying like continued escalation of violence and destruction only 
breeds mutually assured destruction, right? Like the only way to end this was for Spider-Man to not respond to it in a way. Right. Not to, not to go head on. Yeah. Yeah. Which is really interesting, you know, as a kind of like statement for the character too, right? Like he often rushes into things like fist blazing and really it was a different technique that would allow him to win. But the problem with it is once you know the secret of what's really going on here, it doesn't make any sense because, and I'm going to jump ahead a bit and we'll get back to that later. But like, we find out that the Doom bots are being controlled not by Doom, but by the like Chancellor or whatever her name is, the Countess. If the Countess is controlling the Doom bot or and control isn't actually Doom, it is a Doom bot. If she's controlling that, then she already knows the truth, right? Like she already knows that it's not the Hitman and and that it was a setup and like and that was the political machinations of it. Why would Doom back down? It doesn't make any sense. If it's Doom, it makes sense that Spider-Man is calling his bluff and his vanity in regards to saying, like, don't do this. This is what people want you to do. But that's what the Countess did all this for. She wanted to cause destruction. The only way I can no prize this is that she later says that they had trouble with, like, the violent control over the doom bots so they couldn't actually kill anyone and so she like backed out of it because spider-man gave her an opportunity to not kill him but that's like really richly digging into the text i don't know like does it make sense to you like like looking back on it and rereading this issue i was like wait a minute this doesn't actually make sense if it's not doom it really like makes it even more convoluted i mean it's it's basically like why did we just go through this entire exercise when, like you said, the truth has kind of been out there to these characters? I mean, yes, we as the reader didn't know the truth, but the character, you know, once the truth is out there, we're under the impression that the characters have known the truth this whole time. So then why are they acting the way they're acting? And like that's 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 kind of like backing yourself into a corner and then, yeah, like having to no prize yourself out. But even, even the no prize I just suggested doesn't make any sense because then the clairvoyant showed like visions where doom is killing everyone. So is the clairvoyant being fooled that this is actually doom? It doesn't make any sense. Like if you unpack it for even a second. And then of course we get all this like kind of mass destruction of the city from these doom bots, you know, courtesy of being controlled, but like, are we to believe that in the Marvel universe now, like all these like landmarks in New York are destroyed courtesy of Doom? It just seems like, it just seemed like a very odd thing. You you mentioned nine eleven earlier, Dan. So you know, like on that level, like you know, we we got the the nine eleven issue of Spider Man, and I always know like that one of the criticisms of that is like you know, they obviously took this real life event and and did this very emotional issue about it, but like there are things in the Marvel universe that are like you know fictional that are like umpteen times the scale of that but like so like here we have something where it's like you know like the statue of liberty is destroyed and the new york public library is getting destroyed and it's just kind of like very nonchalant and like up oh, yep so this happened and spider-man's like yep he did that on his way out what a jerk you know but like <laughs> like it should be much more dire than that given its connection to the real world and you know how much New York is important in in the Marvel universe, yada yada. I don't know. Am I am I being over? Am I overreading it a bit? No, no, I don't think so. And I, I think I mean with anything like in comic books, you have to kind of balance the emotional truth with the kind of like literal truth. 
you know, and, you know, it might be like upsetting to see the Statue of Liberty destroyed in this comic, but it has no emotional connection to it because it's just going to be rebuilt or whatever. You know, it's just like a beat, you know, whereas an emotional truth would be like Doom destroys the feast center or something again. I mean, not not that it should, because that building has been destroyed five times in the past six months. That would be like an, an emotional destruction, whereas this just feels kind of like. You know, what are the cheapest shots we can take? You know, like what are recognizable things that people like bring real world emotions to? And I just I'm not willing to bring real world emotions to like seeing the Statue of Liberty get destroyed off kind of like in one panel in the Marvel Universe. Like this is this is so much about this issue that just feels like completely disconnected from the creators that are that have been doing that did it and have been doing this series for the last couple of years. It's just, it just feels so odd to me. It doesn't read like a Nick Spencer comic. Like if you told me that someone else wrote this, I would believe that. Was there any indication that maybe he wrote the plot, but not the script because it just doesn't read like anything. I mean, even, I mean, this whole storyline has been kind of blah, but like it still has felt like Nick Spencer. This just felt like, like completely out of nowhere. And then do we want to talk about this Miguel O'Hara tie-in like that? Speaking of out of nowhere, how, how, how do you want to explain this? Because like, to me, like, it's just like he, he washes up like on an island. Is that what I'm supposed to be interpreting here? I guess so. Yeah. And then he sees, and I don't even remember her name. And I read that comic every month for a couple of years, but the character from the Peter David series, you know, from the reboot that he was in love with, but like Tempest it, was her name. Tempest. Okay, great. But so here's somebody, I'm somebody who read it and I'm like, oh yeah, that character. Oh, they're reunited, I guess. But like, if this is supposed to be a reintroduction to 2099, there's no context. Like who, do, what are we supposed to get from this? If you're not that loyal of a reader to the series. No, it's like the editor is completely out to lunch. Like if there was ever time for an editor's note, this would be it. Like, advertise your 2099 crossover to me. Like, please, please advertise to me because I want to know what the hell this event was. And I've been saying it before the event even started, which was like, I don't know what this is. And nobody is doing a job of communicating it to me. Like, yeah, this this scene is totally baffling. Now, I know what is going on here because I have like read articles explaining the other issues that I didn't read to me. But if you've not read the new 2099 number one that they put out, this would be total nonsense. And there's not even a thing that goes like, if you want to know more, check out, like it doesn't have Thor flying by being like, read my comic. You know? I mean, I would say like in one breath, it, it, it feels like a cynical kind of like, Oh, we're just going to assume that, you know, all the people who read, these comics are like you and me, Dan, who, even though we didn't for this, go out and buy everything. You know what I mean? Because that's what we do. But like, they don't even put like the barest minimum of lip service into that by like giving an editor's note. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. like we know you're going to buy it. So here's where you can find it. You know what I mean? Like they don't even do that much. It's, it's just utterly bizarre. It is bizarre. So let me explain what this is apparently supposed to be. You ready for this, Mark? Sure, go. I'm, 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 I'm so anxious. Okay, so apparently in the Spider-Man 2099 relaunch that they did, like apparently the whole crux of this 2099 event is that the old 2099 future got like erased. 
And there's a new 2099 future that they're like coming up with new characters for. Like they're erasing the backstory of all these 2099 characters, including Spider-Man 2099. So they started over again with a new Miguel O'Hara. And so the old Miguel O'Hara got like bounced back into the past. And so that's what we were seeing throughout this amazing Spider-Man comic. And this is the scene where he like gets to reunite with Tempest and his child who he like had to leave at the end of the Peter David story. And so apparently in 2099, number one, that new Miguel encounters this Miguel now much older because he's grown 80 years into 2099. And like that, the old Miguel is like the uncle Ben character to this new Miguel. And so these things are all tying together, but like, how am I supposed to know that? I read it in a CBR article. It's like the one time I've been to that site since I worked there. Totally baffling. I mean, I guess good for Miguel. He got back with Tempest. This is a, this is one of those like stumble right out of the gate of some new relaunch. Like who's going to want to read these books? Nobody. Do we want to do we want to go back to the Spider-Man plot line here? We got some like stuff with Silver Sable and some stuff with Chameleon at the end and and Let's Teresa. tackle Silver Sable really quickly. Okay. Here's Silver Sable. <laughs> she she took the infinity formula so now she's healing, right? I guess so. So she's going to be fine in a couple of weeks. We'll see if they keep up that plot line they discussed where like she has to keep taking new infinity formulas in order to survive. Like what do you want to bet? We never revisit that again. Yeah. And it's just weird to me too, because like you said, like, you know, in one breath we had Sable was brought back by Dan Slott after she was seemingly killed off. And it was kind of like, Oh, well that, that, you know, like she's, she's back and seems to be fine, which is kind of cheap. And then, you know, at the beginning of this storyline, Spencer kind of threw us a curveball by, by, explain you know by putting this situation but now like we're gonna get hypothetically a silver sable who's healed again so like what was the point of this whole exercise oh only as a point if people keep up with it and write her as someone who has this kind of like terminal thing that she has to kind of deal with every now and again but this is the kind of thing that i feel like another writer is just going to forget and move on from. But I mean, that's just me being really cynical. So, you know, maybe I'll be proven wrong and there will be an interesting new wrinkle for Silver Sable. But yeah, I like the idea that she had like LMDs operating for her and, you know, that's kind of a new way to approach the character. Yeah. So there's that. And she doesn't really say anything here. So, but then it's kind of revealed the thing we talked about earlier where the countess had used a bullet to hack into doom's doom bots so that she could cause an international incident and rally the world against Latveria and behind Simcaria so that she could kind of take control of Simcaria away from Silver Sable, which is interesting if it made any sense, right? Like she's counting on Doom being too vain to like admit that someone hacked into his Doom bots. It just doesn't make sense if you go back and think about it for a minute. And also, like, who really cares about, like, Latveria and Simcaria in a Spider-Man comic? Like, they've been kind of interesting kind of tertiary concepts in in Amazing Spider-Man over the years. But, like, this seems like something you would really want to handle in, like, a Silver Sable miniseries or something like that. Like, it's just not a threat that, like, Spider-Man... I guess I'm, I'm saying that, even though Volume 4 very much, you know, focused on this kind of stuff. 
It doesn't seem very Spider-Man to me, but what do I know? No disrespect to Sable's creators and good friends of the show, Ron Friends and Tom DeFalco, but like the character has never really truly moved the needle for me. And certainly the politics of Simcaria versus Latveria, to me, that's I, I don't pick up a Spidey comic looking for like political turmoil between two fictitious nations that you know, have really nothing to do with Spider-Man outside of the fact that a character that's been created in this comic comes from one. And then we get this chameleon interrogation where Mark Hope always springs eternal here because Teresa is angry about Chameleon teasing her about her dead partner. And then Chameleon teases that there's more to come. Mark, what do you think? Is Teresa a android like Peter's parents? Oh, man. <laughs> I didn't even know what to think of Chameleon's kind of mustache twirling at the end there, but I, I don't know if I went there exactly, but maybe it's just your 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 hopefulness, Dan, that this character is just going to find a way to be completely written out of this comic. But, you know, it's kind of like, no, this is the character that's going to stay. This is the mistake that's not going to be undone, right? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. It's, I, it's like the Red Goblin. I'm going to will it into existence. If I keep saying it, it's going to happen. You know, we're right on the verge of Christmas, Dan. I don't want to spoil your Christmas by saying, nah, it's just Chameleon's just got other games up his sleeve. But, you know, nothing that's that's going to result in Teresa Parker being completely blotted out of existence here. You're probably right. But because he does, you know, his stated goal, I guess, like prior to this was to avenge the Craven death. You know, I guess prior to this story, that was his like long term goal. So I don't know how this fits in with that at all, but maybe he was financing some big revenge scheme. This is just me being hopeful and kind of appeasing the fans who like to hear me bag on Teresa. So that's the comic. Mark, let's get to grades. This is such a tough one to grade, Dan, because it's it really does just feel kind of like, uh, I mean, I'm going to give it a... This might sound even generous. I'm, I'm going to give it a C minus because I, I, I felt there were parts of it that at least felt like a Spider-Man comic to me, albeit a very generic one. At the same token, like this is was not the inspiring way to end a very uninspiring storyline. So, uh, how about you? Yeah, I'll give it a C minus two. I'm I'm feeling the holiday spirit right now. Here's our gift, Nick Spencer: a C minus for this story. But we got like what Ryan Otley coming down the pike next, and some kind of fun looking comic. So you know, maybe things will get better right around the corner. We got Boomerang and Spidey fighting Stegron and Gog, so maybe there's hope. All right, 2020, uh, Stegron and Gog. This is coming directly for us. Boom. Thanks again to everyone who's already supported us on Patreon. You guys finally pushed us over the 100 members mark, which is pretty cool. So thanks again to everybody who joined in that club and help us get to 200 by jumping on the bandwagon now before we roll out all the really cool stuff with season four. In the meantime, though, please enjoy our Patreon review of Amazing Spider-Man Volume 5, number 37, with a truly surprising ending. Enjoy our review for Amazing Spider-Man 37. We're back. Nick Otley's back. Not Nick Otley, Ryan Otley's back. <laughs> Nick Otley already, and Ryan already, Spencer. Uh, <laughs> you're already tarnishing this record. Here. I'm, I'm already making mistakes. Let's let's throw a Sajani in there for old time's sake. Anyway, it's Amazing Spider-Man Volume 5, Number 37, Legacy 838. 
What'd you think, Dan? Welcome back, Nick Otley. I mean, Ryan <laughs> Otley. I think this is no coincidence, or maybe it is, but it seems like Nick Spencer is saving all of his best stories for Otley to draw. You know, it's it's like a it's like a mark of quality. Even though we didn't necessarily love the first story arc of, of this run, you know, the extended story arc rather. But it seems like Otley is the guy that's here to kind of deliver classic Spider-Man stories as we know and love them. And I thought that this one was like all the others, like a really solidly told tale, if of very little consequence or or overall grander movements forward. This feels definitely like another like moving all the pieces into place kind of a story, which I don't think would have been problematic if we didn't just have this 2099 storyline that just basically derailed the entire arc here for the most part uh, for the last couple of months. I mean, and, and they even kind of poke fun at it in the recap page. It's like, oh, it's a uh, uh, city safe time for a change. But like, I don't mean to bemoan this because we already kind of took our shots at the 2099 storyline over the last few episodes of this podcast. But like at the end of the day, I mean, it really did such a disservice here because like this, this storyline here in, in issue 37 feels even more of like a, a, a wheel spinner because like we had so much of nothing over the last couple of months. Yeah. I feel like if this story introduced something kind of more new then it uh, it would stand out a bit more. I mean, like you're you were right when you said it's about the putting the things in place. And I think the story that it's advertising looks to be really fun. You know, we've got kind of pieces with Jonah moving forward. Kindred is kind of stepping up a little bit, maybe not all the way that you'd want him to. And there's an interesting kind of like Spider-Man balancing his life story. But you know, for that we we're on twenty nine nine for so long, I want to kind of move into the next story already. But at the same time, I feel like if we had gotten an issue like this to kind of lead us into 2099, you know, maybe that story would have been easier to swallow instead of that story that kind of like from the get go rocketed forward, forward into insanity. Like uh, here, at least I know where all the pieces are. This, again, at least feels like I would say a Spider-Man story, at least from the perspective of like, hey, we're doing these check-ins on the supporting cast and we're seeing some Jonah. We're seeing some Nora Winners. Like you said, we see some Kindred, some MJ. Like, I, I feel like we're back in this universe again in a way which we weren't the last couple of months. I mean, I think that was the other really disappointing thing about the 2099 arc was, I mean, yeah, we we did get some time with Peter and Spider-Man and like the clairvoyant and all this, but like, it just, it just didn't feel, it just felt so separate from everything that this arc has been building toward, you know, the, the larger arc within an arc, I guess you could say, since Spencer took over this book a couple of years ago. I mean, like, you know, he had been, he's been building to something specific, which I feel gets built towards more here, even if it's still very incremental and very slow. But like that 2099 story just like was just its own flavor. Obviously, Marvel had its own intentions in doing that storyline. And, and now like kind of bringing it back here the way this does, while it's nice and kind of familiar and Otley's artwork is great. And hey, we get like Spider-Man fighting Stegron and it's fun and it's 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 goofy. It almost like took me a couple of reads of this issue to I guess almost fully get into it, if that makes sense, because of just how out of it I was from the last time around. It's interesting because Spencer's stories are very much not about Spider-Man fighting any one villain. They're they're very Peter Parker oriented. 
And I, you know, I, I look, I, I am very happy that this book has reoriented itself around a recognizable Peter Parker, but I do wish that the Spider-Man adventures had a little more consequence. And, you know, I'm hoping that as this story continues, that that kind of steps up a little bit. I, you know, I know that the stories are always about that balance. And again, I would ultimately always rather lean into the Peter Parker stuff, taking more precedent than the Spider-Man stuff. That would be the biggest thing about this book is that like so many of the adventures feel so of little consequence. And the other thing is that like this book is really thematically strong. The problem is it's a theme that we've already addressed in Nick's book, you know, even just a, if it was just a year ago to be teasing all these big ideas and then focusing on themes we've already kind of dealt with. I kind of want to move forward on the other stuff. You know, like, tell me what Jonah is doing in this issue or make a whole issue about that. Or I just want to see some real big, bold. There's something solid and self-contained in this issue on its own. If someone were to come up off the street and see you had a copy of this book in your hand and they said, you know, oh, what happened in this one? What's this about? Like, what would you actually say about this issue? I would say, actually, that there is a coherent story here. You know, it is about Peter trying to balance his life and try to allow the Peter stuff not be interrupted by the Spider-Man stuff. And so he uses his clairvoyant device to basically get ahead on time and defeat all of his enemies, you know, ahead of schedule so that his Spider-Man stuff isn't interfering in his life. It's actually a really... I think solidly told tale about that element of Spider-Man's life. But like I said, that was the, I think the core thematic of the first story that Nick Spencer told. So it's like, it's a really solid issue, but I, we had already explored Peter doing this. There's a part of me in its own weird way that like, I just, because I just don't buy this as a MacGuffin. Like it just, this just, this whole device just feels so utterly cheap and useless and, and 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 unfair to like the world of Spider-Man that like when when they're using it to drive elements of the plot forward like I just kind of don't want to buy into it because I'm like this is this doesn't seem right you know and am I am I does does that make sense to you uh, I don't necessarily disagree with you but I do like that the book kind of goes out of its way to say like this thing's not going to last long and you know it it can't really be that accurate it's not a true future teller in, in the way that like the character from civil war two was. And they make that reference. Like, I think he like, layers enough complications onto it that like, I'm kind of okay with this kind of a uh, sci-fi level device appearing in the Spider-Man comic. I don't love it. You know, I think he put enough caveats there to make me go, okay. Honestly, this was probably one of my favorite stories that Dan Slott did that two parter with the time door and I feel like, you know, like he took something that was kind of off the wall from a Spider-Man storytelling perspective and just kind of kept it self-contained within itself. Whereas the clairvoyant here, I feel like it's just kind of like lingering. And, and, and even though, yeah, they're setting it up that this isn't going to have like huge long-term implications. There's a part of me that's like, all right, well, then then why is it still here? Why are we still using this? And and what, what, what are we ultimately hoping to get out of this? Is, is this going to dovetail with kindred in some way is this gonna go somewhere else like like i feel like you know this chekhovian gun has been hanging around for too long it's got to have some kind of semblance of consequence uh beyond just whatever they feel 
solve the the 2099 storyline which to me wasn't that exciting i guess i think about it a little bit more like say like the tablet of life and death you know like that's kind of a random sci-fi fantasy element to bring into the series and it'll it'll do what it needs to do and be gone i don't disagree that this is another distraction from the kindred storyline which i would like you know there's all these other things that are going on like what is kingpin after and who is kindred that I would much rather accelerate than this time device that seems to be just kind of like a, a short term distraction from those things. And I think that's the thing. If there weren't all these other things hanging over this book, I don't think I'd be as bothered by the clairvoyant. But again, the clairvoyant is the same thing as like the isotopic genome accelerator from the first arc. It's just some random device that is, there to facilitate whatever existential journey Spider-Man is going on. And again, for me, more than the clairvoyant itself, I'm the disappointing thing is that I felt like we already kind of dealt with that thematic. Maybe we're going to deal with it in a new way here, but it seems very similar to what we did right at the beginning of this run. You could go back to almost any other issue of Dicko and Lee and, you know, the, the theme was always the same of, of Spider-Man interfering. I mean, like, these, it's it's a classic theme. It's a, it's a theme that's done a lot for a reason, but, like, I feel like there's something to the structure and the way that Spencer kind of leans into this theme that feels a little repetitive, because, yeah, I mean, there's only so many stories you really can ultimately tell with Spider-Man when it comes to the big, broad ideas. But, like, I don't know. You, you, there, there are different paths to get there. And I still feel like we're kind of hitting the same paths over and over and over again with Spencer and Otley. Like, there's just a part of me that feels in, in my own way that I've read this comic before. I think that's what it comes back to. It's like just the, the look of it, the feel of it, the, 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 the way it, it, it kind of unfurls. This just feels a lot like, yeah, those first few issues. I feel like some of the middle issues. I mean, everything, everything outside of the Craven stuff, which felt like, even though we weren't a fan of it, at least like Otley, uh, uh, excuse me, Spencer was like pulling the trigger on one of his big threads for the first time. And, and now that we're, you know, it seems like the other big dangling thread from that first arc is, of course, Kindred. And it's like, okay. What are we doing here, guys? Like, are we doing the story or not? Like, are we getting ready to move into it or not? Because, like, I, I, I feel like every time we get back to these little setup issues, we're just going back to the same old ground and it just feels like the same comic over and over and over again. I don't necessarily disagree with that. And I think it's even more frustrating to kind of, you know, piggyback on your Stan Lee, Steve Dicko or John Romita senior comment, which is that a lot of those books had the same themes, but like the comics industry has changed in a huge way since then. Like we're not getting a story every month. We're getting a story every three or four months as they do these big mega arcs. And for the big mega arcs to seem very similar, whether it's like focusing on Spider-Man's kill code or his inability to balance his life, you know, I'm waiting for like a new bigger wrinkle to be brought onto it. And for all the criticism that we gave Dan Slott over the years, I felt like each of his stories really tried to bring in something new. I mean, whether you liked it or not, like him being the head of a you know fortune 500 company or having his body swapped at least allowed us to explore whether it's similar themes in a new way or new themes altogether. Yeah. I mean, there was unquestionably a freshness to every time, a new slot story kicked off. I, I, I mean, no, no two slot stories seem the same to me. 
And that's, that wasn't always, that didn't mean I liked them all because we, we didn't, <laughs> you know what I mean? But I, I never made that mistake here. I do want to commend the structure of the book though. I do think it's kind of cool that, you know, the first whole first half of the book, we're seeing Spider-Man fighting all these villains. You know, we've got this woman in a burning building who looks exactly like Deborah Grayson from uh, Invincible. That's Mark Grayson, the main character's mother. And Ryan Otley even teased a couple months back that she might be making an appearance in this book. So I tweeted at him and said, is this her? Is this Deborah Grayson? And he said, no, because that would be copyright infringement. But it is another woman that looks just like her. There's a cheeky kind of invincible reference in there. We've got these kind of roller skate goons led by Blue Streak from Captain America 217 who I believe shut up earlier in this run. I forget the specific issue. So that must be a favor to Spencer's or something he wanted to use when he was writing Captain America, but never got to. And then you mentioned Stegron, always a perennial favorite of ours. You know, I like that we saw those characters and then later found out that none of that had actually happened. And it was just Spider-Man using clairvoyant to kind of look ahead, which is a similar twist to what we got in that Dr. Doom kind of cliffhanger a few issues back. But I thought it was a really neat way to structure the book here is to actually show us like what he would have caught and caught up with, but ultimately managed to avoid. I mean, did you enjoy that element? It was a nice spin. I mean, of course, you know, at the end of the day, the reason why he did all this was to, you know, get this time with MJ at the I mean, not to jump ahead, but, you know, it was, you know, to kind of buy him some time there. And then, you know, that kind of goes back to the kindred stuff, but, but but then I feel like we're hitting the same beats with that. You know what I mean? In terms of like the setup with MJ and he's talking about, it's a dream, you know, this feels like a dream and, and then here's kindred and now kindred is using cryptic code and everything that you told, I told you about the last issue that seems to indicate who I am. Don't believe it now. It's kind of like the, the, the spiel coming out of that. So yeah, I mean, there was a spin on it, but I, I still feel like we're like we're going through these paces and yeah, things are maybe a little different from page to page, but like we're, we're ending back at the same spot each time with these comics right now. And, and, and that's where the frustration comes in. It's kind of like the clairvoyant where we're, we're doing things a little differently and we're getting ahead of ourselves. But at the end of the day, we're, 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 we're back on the couch and falling asleep and it's the same thing. You know, so I don't know. I really want to see something new come out of this. Can we talk a little bit about the Jonah little sidebar here? Because, I mean, Jonah was somebody we haven't seen. When was the last time we got legit FaceTime with Jonah in this book? It wasn't that long ago. I mean, I would say probably before the absolute carnage stuff. So a few months. But like, I do remember we saw Nora kind of come to Jonah and, and, and you know, say she wanted to talk to him. And or I guess she didn't go to him. She was talking to Robbie. We, you're right. I guess it was that big, the big man story. It feels like a while, and I do feel like Spencer writes Jonah well. I mean, every, I mean, it's hard to write Jonah bad. <laughs> <laughs> His Jonah is especially good though, because he's he's working with a difficult situation, which is like good guy Jonah, and he still manages to make him kind of like the crank that you love, even though now he's like on our side. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he, he he threads that needle very nicely. It's it's worth noting that Jonah is eating pizza here. So you know, and I know this was this came up on Twitter, Dan, with, with some of our listeners. But yes, Papa Jonah reference. I, we we have to make note of it, right? Uh, we have to. I mean, I I, I can't. It, it did not look out of the comic and wink at me and suggest that it was a Papa Jonah reference. But I mean, when was the last time you saw Jonah eating food? 
you know, either it's a reference to Dan Slott's Jonah eating pizza while looking for a job, or it's a reference to Papa Jonah. You know what? I'll just leave it at that. It, 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 potential Papa Jonah reference. And then we get some more jokes from Spencer that make fun of morning radio hosts. He's really got a got an issue with this, huh? <laughs> I love Chet and Chet. I want these guys to hang around. They are they're terribly annoying. To bring in more real world world criticism, I love, you know, once Nora Winters shows up and I love a good appearance from Nora Winters, she like tries to convince Jonah about like new age writing. And I loved all the attacks at like listicle articles. Yes. You know, because Jonah's like, yeah, I may have been bad and hired a uh, a supervillain to make my articles, but at least I never made a list of supervillains. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Which to me is like that one joke that Spencer puts in every issue that just brings down the house. As someone who's written many listicles over the years, let me just say I have no defense. We are supposed to put them on different pages because we want you to click, Dan. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. So so Nora comes to Jonah with this new venture idea suggesting that everybody, you know, doesn't want their content on the radio anymore. They want podcasts. And, you know, if you look at the solicits, we know that Jonah is going to become a podcaster. And she shows him this kind of monetary amount, which, boy, does it does not square with my knowledge of podcasting. I imagine that Jonah is a bigger get than members of the amazing spider talk podcast in that he was like the mayor and the head of a big newspaper and he's a radio personality and all the stories he's been involved in. I mean, I imagine Jonah would be a pretty like hot guy to get to host stuff, even if he's a bit cranky. This guy's a legend. I mean, even not even just for us. He's a legend. I'd like to see them push this a little more. I think they could have a lot of fun with it. Kind of seeing Jonah be both out of his element, but just also so in his element in terms of his personality, I think will lead to good storytelling. I really like this evolution of the character. I just don't know how long it can sustain. What are the continual ways of involving old man Jonah and his and his kind of news empire in a story when he's pro Spider-Man? You know what I mean? Like before he's hung around for 50 plus years because He's been an adversary short of making him Spider-Man's Oracle. I don't really see like how you keep Jonah around other than as a commentary on new news media. I think it's fun in the short term, but I hope that Spencer has some kind of like long term idea of what to do with the character without completely undoing what they what they have done for him. And I, admittedly, I'm also looking forward to seeing Spencer take some jabs at podcasters if only to laugh about any kind of criticism he might have of our chosen profession. <laughs> and I'm sure he, I'm sure he has opinions in real life. <laughs> so we talked a little bit about the clairvoyant stuff that kind of comes in here, but so Spider-Man kind of undoes the, the effects of these super villains that we saw in the beginning. So they never really happened. And he kind of gets the jump on them. And I thought there was some kind of nice moments where he, reaches out to the, the superhero community about how to use this device and has some, you know, I'd say like kind of interesting responses. I like that cap, you know, trust Spidey's responsibility. It's kind of those moments that I think fight against the criticism that Dan Slott had a lot of the time where it's like Spider-Man was like a man child and nobody trusted him. Like to have cap just in one panel, give him some, you know, responsibility, suggest that like, oh, Spider-Man isn't just this like idiot that nobody likes. If anyone kind of comes across as the idiot here, it's it's Johnny Storm, which is I feel like kind of 
That to me, that feels apropos. <laughs> I thought the Daredevil thing was interesting. The Daredevil seems so antagonistic towards Spider-Man. Like, I don't know if that's a a dynamic that's played out somewhere else that I just haven't read about yet. Like, if you go back, especially like in like the like DeFalco friends and and Gene DeWolf, which we're we're about to get to, Daredevil was kind of I I feel like he he pushed Spider-Man's buttons. Like, you know what I mean? Like he, he, there was, there was something kind of both like they were on the same team, but both also kind of adversarial to each other in, in a very weird way. So I don't want to spoil anything for those who haven't read it, but uh, Spider-Man makes a kind of like really big appearance there at the end of the first arc and essentially asks Daredevil to stop being Daredevil. It's a really interesting appearance by Spider-Man. So I wonder if there's like, I haven't read much past that first arc, so I wonder if Spider-Man is showing up in that book. And maybe this is a reflection of that as well. An interesting moment, nevertheless. So from there, Spidey kind of like saves the day and snags some snacks. And we spend a, a kind of an inordinate amount of time with him doing that. But I thought it was fun. You know, he grabs Coke chips and sugar bombs, which, if I'm not wrong, is a Calvin Hobbes reference. Because in Calvin Hobbes, his constant cereal in that series is uh, chocolate frosted sugar bombs. Oh man, it's, it's been so long since I've been with Calvin and Hobbes that I don't remember. But that sound that that sounds on brand here. I know it's that's what it is in Calvin Hobbes. So I just don't know if it's like a, if it was an intentional reference. I'm gonna I'm gonna say yes. I like the bit where he tells the sales clerk about his furnace that's gonna go up and that he'll check back in. That really struck me as like a really honest. Spider-Man moment if you know if he suddenly found himself with these kind of fortune telling powers it was like equally friendly neighborhood and like you know Spider-Man-y. So we we get to this kind of phone virtual date between Spidey and MJ and Spidey of course you know Peter of course kind of starts dozing off we get another comment about you know this relationship feels like a dream which we've talked about and then as Spider-Man Falls asleep. Who shall appear, Dan? It's Kindred. And of course, Kindred is there. He references his last, you know, basically the last storyline with uh, Norman Osborn and Absolute Carnage, saying, you know, kind of saying, but not in these exact words, like, oh, you feel like you figured out who I am and what I am, but, you know, there's more to, you know, there's more to it. This is Spencer kind of maybe after very strongly suggesting that Harry Osborne, Harry Lyman, whoever you want to call him, Harry was the under the mask that that's maybe not the case, which would not surprise me because first rule of mysteries, it seems too obvious. It probably is. Plus our speculation from that one episode that we did a while back. If you haven't listened to it, go back and listen to our kindred speculation episode where we brought in the first kiss theory kind of thing. Some direct quotes from you here, which again, like, you know, this, he always kind of talks in this very high-minded, like, righteous language. Here he says, I know the truth about you. I want us to face it together. I want so badly for you to do what's right. You know, now I feel like, and we've talked about this before, we're going back to the kid, you know, the Parker child, the unborn Parker child, like, 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 you know, because I don't know, Dan, I, I, I'm starting to both like kind of get exasperated and guessing, but how do you not guess? <laughs> this suggests that like whatever Kindred is about, he's going after some moment from Spider-Man's past. And he's alluded to this before, like some big thing that would undo Spider-Man and 
you know, like what are all the big things that would undo Spider-Man? Well, we get one of them here, right? Where he summons forth the Sin Eater, right? And, you know, there are a bunch of associated things with that. Like, first of all, you know, in the Sin Eater story, Spider-Man dodges, you know, one of his machine gun blasts and it kills a bystander. And we've never really dealt with that, like really much beyond that story and the kind of brief mention of the sadness that that brings to Spider-Man and almost pushes him to do something like truly awful. Right. And daredevil stops him. So like is Spider-Man's greatest sin that he let someone die in a crowd or that he almost beat the sin eater to death. And the sin eater would ultimately kind of commit suicide by cop. Like, is that his greatest sin to me? That would be a huge letdown. If like the kindred was like related to the sin eater, either being like, that random bystander who got killed or Jean DeWolf herself. How do you feel about all this? I know people out there love this sin eater storyline, the, the death of Jean DeWolf. And, and, you know, I, 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 I like it. I, I, I don't know if I'm ready to put it on a pedestal, but some do, but like, it's, it's a good, it's a fine story. And I know like in the annals of Spider-Man history, a lot of people consider it one of the better ones, but like based on what we were getting, Specifically during the absolute carnage tie-in, this this tie tying into to this era of Spider-Man and 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 this storyline just seems very random for me because like for the longest time it seemed like Kindred and his universe was kind of more coexisting with kind of like that classic Lee Ramita Spider-Man era in terms of Flash and MJ and Harry and Gwen and and. To me, it seemed like that was kind of what we were hitting upon. Even if it, even if it was some kind of manifestation of the marriage, which we have, have have talked about before, like at least that is rooted in like that kind of youthful innocence and love uh, of those characters that can be traced back to those early days. But like you know, kind of bringing in this very—I mean, that's the other thing. Like tonally, like Gene DeWolf and Sin Eater, this is like from a very dark era of spider-man in terms of how the character was being written and it just it just seems too random for me dan like like why are we going here now you know like why i mean what what what's next are we going to start finding like random like denny denny o'neill characters that with that we did that came up you know we, is, is linkus or uh, pinkus uh whatever uh the the the, the country songster lonesome pinkus. <laughs> lonesome pinkus my goodness is he gonna show up with his greatest sin of like you know the time peter walked out on the show i mean like come on like <laughs> let's keep can we keep some consistency here and like peter's i guess committed a lot of sins but it's like w- w- to be so rooted in almost like the silver age and then to start throwing out like this very bronze age character it definitely didn't sit right with me you know for me i'm curious to see like ultimately what comes of this i imagine this is like the same power that kindred expressed in regards to mysterio which is like bringing people out of hell and returning them to the living and you know i i suspect we're going to get like a march towards kindred's reveal that is lined in deceased spider-man villains that have kind of come back to haunt peter for all of his sins and, you know, whatever Kindred is, a representation of the greatest sin that Spider-Man has ever had, which to me still points towards the one more day thing. Uh, there is, you know, a bit here where Kindred says, 
you know, it's about a lie that unravels everything you are. The one bit you buried so deep, you barely even remember it at all. But it's still there, Pete. Can you sense it coming closer now? And to me, that could be no more clear one more day, right? Something you don't remember, but it's still there, you know, and it's coming closer because Peter is preparing to propose to Mary Jane. Like, if it's not a one more day tie-in thing at this point, like, I have no idea what it could possibly be because it everything points that direction to me. Yeah, I mean, it's one more day or it's the baby, you know, from from the 90s, from the clone saga. You know what I mean? Like, that's to me the other thing that was like kind of forgotten. Like, they, I mean, they literally like stopped mentioning that child three issues later. You know what I mean? Like, it, it's like it never happened. Right. And that's the Norman tie in, too. Right. If Norman recognizes Kindred in some way, you know. Then, you know, Norman was directly tied in with the baby. Not for nothing. I hate to. Oh, God. I, 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 I'm I going down a rabbit hole, Dan. Brace yourself. But like, you know, when you go back to the whole thing with the baby, I mean, we never truly saw what happened to that baby. We've always just assumed that Norman killed it. Right. Right. But we, you know, the, like as as Wilson Fisk said about Matt Murdock, there was no corpse. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and that is that is everything in comics, is it not? I mean, you know, so like is this is this are we coming back to this somehow, you know? Like it would be interesting. Those are the two big ones for me. But like I want to quote Kindred here as my opinion on all of this, which is quote I'm tired of waiting, waiting for all of the pieces to fall into place just right. And, you know, that Kindred says it here as a way to move forward. But like summoning the Sin Eater, fine, you know, but like I want to see Spider-Man know that Kindred exists or address Kindred in some way. And maybe there's some reason why he cannot. But like for for us to be almost a year and a half into this storyline, I'm kind of done with all of this. Like, let's get to it. You know, like, are we waiting for issue 50? Like, I don't know that I can wait 13 more issues to get to have them see each other for the first time. This is going to very unique lengths to drag this out. You know, I was thinking back. and I think I even messaged this to you the other day, Dan, offline. Like, I was thinking back to, like, the Goblin King during Superior Spider-Man and, like, how kind of exhausted we were getting by that. And Goblin King was, was first, I think it was a superior four or five that he first showed up in at the, on the last page. And then he was revealed about a year and change later in, in, you know, at the end of superior Spider-Man that it was Norman or, or I should say Norman with face transplant surgery. To me, that seemed like, wow, we're really pushing this here guys. Cause like, especially again with this kind of, in this era of comic book storytelling, like this isn't, this isn't like, the 80s anymore where Roger Stern could introduce Hobgoblin and then because, you know, it's a monthly book and, and you know, the Hobgoblin shows up for two months and then disappears for six months and then shows up again for two months where you can kind of more organically stretch stretch these things out. Like, we've been getting, like, kindred lip service now off and on every issue, every other issue or so for, like you said, since, I mean, Spencer came on this book, what was it? spring 2018 and you know we're now in winter 2020 you know and even if you're saying oh well we're writing for the trade like like how many trades you're gonna have to buy to get this story (laughs) you know what i mean like like it's 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 
this is ridiculous lanes. Bendis is looking at the story right now being like, wow, man, you're really uh, dragging this out, guys. (laughs) I mean, I don't think I would mind it as much if there was like an evolution of how this played out. You know, like the Hobgoblin, at least Spider-Man met him day one of Hobgoblin's existence. You know, and that was like a back and forth. And there was a point where the Hobgoblin was dead and, you know, he got the and and there were multiple people fingered as the Hobgoblin. Again, again, the Hobgoblin was a famously botched reveal, but at least like along the way, they kind of gave us a bunch of like solidly wrong leads. You know what I mean? Like here, it's like everything has become nebulous because there's been nothing tangible for us to grab onto you know like we'll get a clue and then the next week that clue will be completely obliterated by some other vagary you know and i think he's trying to play it out and avoid you know the people like you and i that will solve this thing day one if he really gives us a solid clue and we may have already solved it from day one when i guessed about the you know spider marriage at least allow us the fun of being like i think i know it or like their relationship is evolving here. It's the same. It's just like the tease is buy more books, buy more books, buy more books. I'm not a professional mystery writer. I mean, actually, if we the person we need to get to weigh in on this is Tom DeFalco because he does write mysteries. But like to me, it seems like if you're going to and this was, you know, when DeFalco was the editor of Spider Man, this is part of the reason why he had an issue with how Roger Stern wanted to reveal the hobgoblin which was like at some point the person that is the mystery has you have to establish them within this universe in some kind of tangible way you know what i mean like 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 you can't just bring somebody out of nowhere the twin brother in this case yeah or the not twin brother twin brother the 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 closely resembling brother even even if it's harry like we haven't seen harry in Two years, you know what I mean? Like, 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 you, you got to give us something. Like, like, we, like, if and if this character truly has been introduced in this run in some way, like, if it's Fred Myers, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like, well, then that's a disappointment. You know, Flash is dead. Gwen is dead. I mean, unless it's MJ, and which we've talked about, but like, you know what I mean? Like at some point, like this isn't being played fairly either, you know? And it's not, I'm not saying that because I want to know. I'm saying this because like, I just don't feel that the rules are being followed in a fair way to, to, you know, actually engage the audience. I, I, I don't know if this is being meant to engage the audience. I think this is just meant to kind of just keep messing with people so that people, you know, people like you and I are just like endlessly speculating. It's this, this person, it's that person, it's that person, it's this person. And then it's just, you know, it ends up being revealed and it could have been one of the people we've talked about, but not for the reasons we said it was. And that, and to me, that's kind of a bummer. At least Spencer was honest up front, right? We got that whole guess my name bit, you know, in, in the end of the first story with the Tri-Sentinel and Robot Master. I mean, he did literally tease us, guess my name, guess my name, from a million robots, you know, so he, he you, you can't blame the guy for not being honest about what he was going to have us do. But, you know, just to point out MJ stuff, you know, like what color were the roses that Peter bought MJ? They were purple, you know, ah, <laughs> you know, if you really if you really want to go down that. And meanwhile, we've got Betty calling in being like, I got some other thing for you to deal with Spider-Man before he blows her off and swings off in his own way. So. 
you know, it's like how many more storylines are we going to get into? I mean, I'm going to be totally cynical and be like, yeah, it's issue 50 we're waiting for. You know, that that's the that seems like the place to do it. We're 13 issues away, so why not wait the whole other six months and, and give us the kindred? Two years. Two years and change. Okay. Uh, you want to wanna get to grades here, Dan? <laughs> yeah, sure. This one's a B for me. For all my hemming and hawing, it's like I had a good time with it. I feel like I'm probably being a little too harsh on this, but I'm going to give it a C plus. I, I, I did have a good time with it, but like, you know, the things that we've been talking about here are just starting to really gnaw on me and I, I need more out of this now. I, I, I don't want to just have a good time. I want, I want, I want resolution here. Yeah. I, and I see that totally. This was a, like whatever day it hit me on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I'm so relieved to be out of the 2099 story that like, okay, good. We're back in the realm of like what it seems to be actually is interested with this book. Yeah, I, I would I would agree to that. Excellent. Well, thanks for joining us for our review roundup episode of the all new Amazing Spider Talk. We hope you all enjoyed our coverage of Amazing Spider-Man volume five, number 35 to 37. What's coming up next, Dan? Well, we're still on hiatus as we plan season four, but we're going to make up for lost time as we adjust to our new release schedule by going to another review roundup next week. I know it's a lot of review roundups. So this time we're going to be talking about Amazing Spider-Man volume five, numbers 38 to 40 and get we're going to get pretty close to caught up in the next few weeks, considering that there's no new books coming out for the foreseeable future. So that's going to be certainly very interesting. Uh, Mark, I guess we're going to keep everybody posted as as to how we're going to handle that. Absolutely. But we'll, we'll, I'll guarantee you we'll come up with something really cool and clever, Dan. I'm sure we will. But yes, for our Patreon subscribers, the fun always continues. Be sure to check out our Patreon page and your podcast feed this week where we've already got special reviews for the entire Nick Spencer run. Maybe the entire run of Spider-Man up through issue 42. Plus, listen as Mark and I kick off our newest mailbag segments and answer questions submitted by our Patreon members. So if you enjoyed today's show, why not help support our show and get caught up with all of our opinions on all the new Spider-Man comics at the same time? Remember, for just $3.99 a month, the price of a new comic, when there are new comics, you'll get access to our exclusive new issue reviews, b-book reviews, and more. Even the guys at the Untold Talks of Spider-Man are doing exciting things. This week, they kicked off their first episode of a new Patreon series called The Told Talks of Spider-Man, where they revisit classic Spider-Man stories. The first episode covers Ultimate Spider-Man, issues number one through seven, so be sure to tune in. Dan... Someone's moving in on our turf, aren't they? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think it's going to be interesting, though, because like, you know, if anybody knows Matthew Derrigish, he tends to have pretty controversial opinions on comics. And I've been told that he thinks Ultimate Spider-Man numbers one through seven is like really terrible and like undoes the legacy of Spider-Man and like the whole meaning of it. So I'm going to have to tune in just to hear like, OK, explain to me why I, I have to know. So. And, and then I think the second episode, they're doing the Master Planner arc, and he's never read it. So this will be his first time checking that out. So it could be quite interesting. So, yeah, check out. I mean, if you haven't already subscribed, check out the Untold Talks of Spider-Man podcast because they're doing a whole different thing while slowly moving in on our territory in the Patreon. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, you know, and we'll cover all the new books and things like that. You know, it'll be curious. Are we going to update our Patreon when comic books finally come back and they're like, 
we're selling them for eight bucks a pop. Are we going to be changing? Who knows? I mean, the future is completely up in the air. But uh, one thing that will be consistent through all of this is the Spider Slack community. Look, if you are as isolated as I am and you're really, truly not seeing other comic book fans, you know, come join our Spider Slack. We're talking about Spider-Man all the time there. And it's kind of expanded into more of like a social help group where everybody's talking about everything, the things that they're doing with their day and we're sharing all kinds of fun ways and recipes. I mean, it's literally become almost like a home away from home for friends because God, everybody needs some friends. So that's the amazing spider slack. It's our kind of like forum and you can find a link to it in our show notes. So check that out if you haven't already. I heard people have discovered the canorium on the spider slack, Dan. Y- yes. Uh, one of the recent discoveries in the spider slack is that Mark is on this like untapped beer app where you're reviewing beers you're drinking. Yeah, you know, it's just a little, it's another, you know, a bit of social media uh, things. But yes, I created my home into its own certified venue using Foursquare. And uh, the name of the venue is Mark's Canorium. So if you're ever in my house drinking a beer, you can check in, check in your beer at the Canorium. Well, I think you're going to have to change the name, Mark, to to the uh, to the, the bar name with that's no over name. your bar. Yeah, yeah the bar with no name. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's it's the Canorium for now, but but the, the 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 signage for the bar with no name hangs proudly as always. Okay, good, 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 good. Well, I'll, you know, as we round things out here, a special thank you again to our fearless editor. That's Rick Coast, who is doing all kinds of exciting stuff all the time. He's got a brand new podcast out about all kinds of strange fiction and how it blends into the reality of our world. So, Rick, why don't you tell everybody about where they can tune into that podcast? Hey, thanks, Dan. So, yes, uh, if you like stories about the paranormal, UFOs, things that go bump in the night, strange happenings in history, then check out the show. It's Rick Coast's Strange Encounters. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much all the places that you can listen to podcasts. There are four episodes out now, many more to come. The latest one is all about a werewolf. Thanks, Dan and Mark. Back to you guys. Awesome. Thanks again, Rick. Definitely go check out his show. Mark, if we wanted to check you out, and boy... Howdy. Do we ever. Mark, uh, where will we find you online? Well, when I'm uh, trying to, you know, basically feed my my ever-growing anxiety, you can find me on Twitter, at ChasingASMblog. Otherwise, you can just kind of find me floating around the internet at my old blog, uh, ChasingAmazingBlog.com. And of course, you can read my book from 2017, Such a Happier Time, 100 Things Spider-Man Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. How about you, Dan? Yeah, sure. I'm on Twitter, too. I'm at at SupSpiderTalk, and I'm also kind of populating our Instagram as well. If you didn't know The Amazing Spider Talk has an Instagram, I'm sure you can guess what it is. It's Amazing Spider Talk. And uh, go check that out, too. You know, I know a lot of people don't go on Twitter because it's a cesspool for negativity. You know, Mark, what do you know about that? I like Instagram personally. I think I, you know, I, 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 I like our feed and I like other feeds. And, you know, so far it doesn't give me the same agita that, that Twitter and Facebook do. So uh, go Instagram. 
Yeah, I'm just discovering it. Uh, like, you know, speaking of a blast from the past, like your book from 2017, I'm just discovering Instagram. It's like I am truly OK boomering it over here. <laughs> He's got no response to that. Folks. I, I, I am just laughing too hard at you right now. That's great. OK, boomer. <laughs> OK, well, let's 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 bring it down a, a notch because, you know, these are trying times. But one thing is sure to get us through all of it, Mark. What would that one motto be? Yes, it's it's check your Instagram feed and with great podcasts. There must also come the all-new Amazing Spider Talk. Mark, we are going back to the mailbag for our Patreon members again. And again, these are questions submitted by our Patreon members to us to answer on the show. And you can only listen to these if you're a part of our Patreon. This question comes from John. And that question is, if you were to collect a full run, of course, including the annuals of any other series, what series would it be? And why? Or maybe if you already have a run that you've collected, Mark, I'd be curious to hear. I mean, I think I have like all 12 issues of what is that? The all new Ultimates or something like that. Does that count, <laughs> does that count Dan? Or? Not quite. I, I, I get this question. Uh, I mean, I, I do have a legitimate answer to this question, but let me preface it by saying like, you know, my preference as a, as a comic book fan and a collector would be, now that I have all of Spider-Man, I would rather focus on... Want to hear more of this conversation? Become a Patreon member by clicking on the link in the description and you'll gain access to this conversation and more. 